Good morning, everyone. My name is Devontae McLean. I'm part of the Bertrand Community Group. Uh, this morning, we're going to be diving into Mark 10, verses 32 through 45. If you have the ESV Bible that's um, out front, that is on page 846. And as Tanner always says, if you do not have a Bible, raise your hand and one of his four children will bring you one. Again, that's Mark 10, verses 32 through 45. And if you have the Bible from here, it's on page 846. I'll go ahead and start. <clears throat> and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. <laughs> and Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant." <clears throat> And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come for even the Son of Man came not to be to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father, thank you that we get to sit under solid teaching. Father, I pray that as Tanner is teaching, you would uh, kindle our desires for you and our love for one another and help us to live rightly in uh, accordance with what we hear in your word. Hey, uh, my name's Tanner House. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're a guest, thank you so much for, for being with us. Underneath your chair is a Connect card. Um, if you'd take a minute and just fill that out for us, we would love an opportunity to get to know you, to serve you, to figure out how we could get you plugged in to the life of the body. On the back side of that is a place for prayer requests. So if you have prayer requests, you need prayer for anything, take a second, write that down. Mark and I would be honored to pray, go before the Lord on your behalf as well. So uh, you can give that back to me at the end of the service. If you don't have a Bible and you need one, you can raise your hand. Um, only half of my four kids are in here, but my son Levi would be happy to accommodate. So if you need one, throw, throw up your rock fist and he'll, he'll help you out. Hey, if, again, if you're a guest, thank you for being here. We do expository preaching here, which means we go verse by verse, book by book, chapter by chapter, um, through the scriptures. And so since the beginning of the church, we have been walking through the gospel of Mark. And so we're going to continue 
that today. Um, it's no secret, I can just tell you all, most of us are on social media at some capacity, and we all have computers in our pockets everywhere we go. Like, it's no secret, our world is moving at a quick, rapid pace. And so what we're seeing uh, just culturally, like in the business world, is an emphasis on leadership. It seems that like Gen Zers, those people born uh, after the year 2000 or so, as Gen Z is entering into the workplace, they require a different type of leadership than their Gen X parents, you know, their parents born before like 1980 or so. Um, I meet with a handful of young men scattered around the, the country who are kind of cutting their teeth in, in ministry and in work life, and one of my constant statements I make to them is this, hey, chase good leadership, don't chase positions. Especially early on in your career, I'm like, hey, attach yourself to a good leader um, because if you chase a position and you have a bad leader, you're like, sometimes you're miserable and then you leave the church bitter and you start selling insurance and you flame out before you really start getting, getting going. So like having good leadership in your early 20s is, some, uh, is, is a benefit to you. And oftentimes, good leadership and good positions don't peacefully coexist for these young men. Anyways, that's for another sermon. But for our purposes this morning, I'd like us to consider something together. What does good leadership look like? To date, there have been well over 15,000 books and articles written on the subject of, of leadership. So what does it mean to be a good leader? I think if I were to just go around the room and take a survey of what you all think it means to be a good leader, we might come up with just several different answers. Like a good leader has status. A good leader has position. A good leader is wealthy and or has experience or his company is growing. Many different answers. It literally could be anything. And I think if we took this even a little deeper what is the standard that you are using to gauge what a good leader is? Like, what's the authority? What are you measuring this leader up against? I think there's a lot of us in here. Like, if I were just to sit down over the table, have a cup of coffee with you, I think there's a lot of us in here that, that want some level of influence or want some level of leadership in various areas of our lives. And I don't think that's, that's a wrong thing. Like, that's not necessarily wrong. But I would invite you to consider what Jesus says about leadership this morning. If you are a believer, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are called to follow Jesus in the way that he has called you to follow him. And then you're to lead out of submission to Jesus. But what exactly does that entail? Uh, our text today gives us some clarity on that, so I just want to take a second and and. Uh, pray, and then we're going we're gonna to dive into this text together. Would you go before the Lord with me? Lord Jesus, we need you. Lord, I'd ask that you would, again, be gracious and show us our need for you. Lord, as the song we just sang says, two things. We can confess our worthiness because of you, Lord, and we know our unworthiness and our need of you. And so I just pray that you would continue to be gracious and reveal yourself to us this morning, new and afresh. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 
All right, so Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32, it says this. And they, that means Jesus and his disciples, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. So just as a follow-up from the last few weeks, We've seen uh, Jesus and his disciples, and they've been in this region of Capernaum, and they're intentionally heading towards Jerusalem. And on the way there, Jesus stops in this region of Judea, and he teaches about marriage and divorce. He teaches on receiving the kingdom of God and childlike faith. And in our text last week, Jesus has a conversation with this guy. He's commonly known as the rich young ruler, and he teaches about laying down our idols in order to receive Jesus in faith. He tells this guy, hey, sell everything that you own and come and follow me. And the guy turned and was sad and walked away. Uh, and so after that, Jesus and his disciples, they get back on their journey towards Jerusalem. The text says that Jesus was leading the way. Like Jesus is walking in front of them, walking ahead of them. And those who are following behind, they're amazed and they're afraid at Jesus' demeanor and at his resoluteness to get to Jerusalem. So there's a few things to take note of here. Because of Jesus' past confrontations with this group of the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders of the day, you see Jesus having a few confrontations, Mark 2, Mark 7, Mark 8. Uh, because of his interaction with these guys, going to Jerusalem as Jesus is risky. The closest followers of Jesus know that in following Jesus to Jerusalem, there's a group of people that don't like Jesus there. And these guys have a lot of influence in society, and it's dangerous because they don't like Jesus. But Jesus is dead set on going there. It's near the time of the Passover celebration, so Jews from all over the known world at the time are making their pilgrimage towards Jerusalem to make their offerings, as was the custom. So Passover is the celebration where the nation of Israel sets aside a week to just remember and celebrate a time when their ancestors were in slavery to Egypt. And after God had sent plague after plague after plague, and Moses tells Pharaoh, hey, let God's people go Pharaoh refuses over and over and over again to let Israel go. You can read about this in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. Well, God says, I'm going to send one more plague upon you. He told them that he was going to kill the firstborn, every firstborn in the land. But then he tells the nation of Israel, hey, take a lamb, a pure and spotless lamb, and kill it. And then put its blood over the doorposts and the lentils of the door. Because the Lord God was going to strike the firstborn of all the nation of Egypt. And when he saw the blood on the doorways, the Spirit of the Lord would then pass over it, thus saving the people that were inside the house. The text says they were going up to Jerusalem. That is a statement of geography because of where Jerusalem sits uh, above other places. So to get there from Judea uh, and Capernaum, for example, you'd have to hike up several miles up this hill in order to get to, to the city. But this is also a spiritual statement. 
Again, the Passover, it's, it, it's coming near, and pilgrims from all over the world are bringing their offerings for the forgiveness and the pardon of, of their sins. That was the custom. But here's Jesus. His face is set towards Jerusalem, knowing full well what is about to happen to him, as the text says. He takes the 12 apostles aside and he predicts for the third time what the next couple of weeks are going to hold for him. He says, guys, we're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be arrested and I'm going to be condemned to death. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. The Gentiles generically means anybody that's a non-Jew. Specifically in this case, it's the Roman government. I'm going to be handed over to the Romans because they have this uh, death penalty, brutal execution by crucifixion, so I'm going to be handed over to these guys, and they're going to kill me. But I'm not going to stay dead. Three days later, I will rise. In his previous predictions of the crucifixion, there's been two. This is the third one. Jesus has emphasized the necessity of his crucifixion. In this case, his prediction carries the weight of certainty. So in this case... There's an added element of betrayal that hasn't been stressed before. When Jesus stressed that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer to be crucified and then resurrected, it's necessary so that your sins can be forgiven. And it's necessary for him to be betrayed so that the scriptures can be fulfilled. So yes, disciples, despair is coming because Jesus is about to get arrested and crucified. But there's also victorious triumphs because he's not going to stay dead. He will rise again. So Jesus, knowing his mission, his purpose, he's headed towards Jerusalem to make his offering to God. Jesus is going to offer himself. But not for the pardon and forgiveness of his sins because he is the perfect, pure, spotless lamb of God. He is offering himself as a pardon and forgiveness of the sins of the world. Jesus is the Passover lamb. So he's telling these things to his disciples and with more detail this time than ever before. He is revealing to them more and more that there is an approaching horror on the horizon. It's becoming more and more of a reality with every step we take towards Jerusalem. And yet, here's Jesus with unflinching determination. He is walking right into it. Because it's necessary for him to die in order for people to be saved. In love, Jesus is willing to lay down his life for those that he loves. And after this prediction... Look at what happens immediately following. Verse 35. Sweet James and John. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want, us to, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right and one at your left in your glory. Here are James and John, and they have this request to make. In Matthew's account, they bring their mom with them. This is a very dude thing to do. Let's let, let our mom talk to, this, to the teacher. Um, and their mom does the talking. So regardless of who did the talking, whether it was James and John or their mother, this question is completely misguided. Some scholars actually maintain that James and John's mother is actually Mary's sister. So that would make James and John Jesus' cousins because their mom would be Jesus' earthly aunt. 
And what we see in the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is that James and John, along with their buddy Peter, were in the inner circle of disciples. And now here are James and John, and they're completely cutting Peter out. Does this not just scream of entitlement to anybody else? Jesus, we're your best friends, and also we're your cousins, so we got a request to make. It's been previously said uh, by Jesus uh, right in about the same time, right before his third prediction in Matthew 19. In Matthew's version of the rich young ruler story, Jesus tells his disciples that they're going to sit on thrones with him in the kingdom, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, as the text says. It's a prophetic picture of a time when all believers will inherit the kingdom of God in this way. And there's a lot more we could say about it. I wish we had time to dive into it because that's a sermon on its own. And we'll get there at some point in the future, just not today. But the important thing for us today in this text is this. Jesus has just promised these guys an inheritance in the kingdom. Jesus has just said, you will sit on thrones with me in the kingdom of God. And because that's not enough for these guys... It's not enough that their faithfulness to Jesus is going to get rewarded. They're wanting the most prominent places that they can hold in the kingdom of heaven. Let's simplify this just a little bit. Jesus says, guys, I am about to die in the most brutally horrific way possible. And then James and John and their mom are like, hey, Jesus, can we sit next to you in your kingdom? Right, right side, left side. How short-sighted of them. But before we kick these guys around too much, let's consider this. The 12 apostles, with the exception of Judas, in spite of their lack of understanding of the resurrection, when Jesus makes these predictions, they do remain loyal to this guy. They remain loyal to Jesus. They believe that Jesus was, in fact, destined for a kingdom, not of this world. They believed him when he said that they had prominent places reserved for them. They remain loyal to Jesus. So at some level, I want to believe that their question is rooted in some level of faith. But here also, it's revealing a lot of their selfishness. They have to grasp that following Jesus, listen to me here, following Jesus can't be superficial. It can't be word only. It requires action. It requires submission. And it requires your obedience. You can't say you're a believer. You can't say you're a follower of Jesus and not do what Jesus says, right? What their question reveals to us is that they have an inflated view of their own importance in life. There is nothing Christ-like in their request. And look at how Jesus responds to them. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink and the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those who, for whom it has been prepared. Jesus asked them, hey, can you do this? Can you drink the cup? Can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm about to be baptized with? And they say, oh, for sure, Jesus. And he's like, yeah, you're right. You will experience this. The cup and the baptism that Jesus is talking about here, they're symbolic. 
To drink the cup of one's leader means to share in the experiences of the leader, both the good experiences and the bad experiences. And when Jesus is talking about baptism, he's talking about the flood he is about to endure. He is about to be plunged underneath the flood of death. And he's asking the disciples, are you willing to follow me to this point? There's both a passive and an active obedience in drinking the cup and being baptized in this way. Jesus chose the cross. Jesus chose to die. Jesus chose to be obedient to his Father, and then he submitted himself to the blows of the people he was delivered to. We know from the history of the Bible, specifically in the book of Acts and the book of Revelation, that these two, James and John, and the others, are certainly about to drink the cup and share in Christ's sufferings in this way. The Apostle James would be the first of the disciples martyred for the sake of following Jesus. That's in Acts 12. The Apostle John endured immense persecution under the Emperor Domitian, who was one of the Caesars of Rome after Jesus uh, had ascended into heaven. This guy Domitian was vicious towards Christians. And John would spend the latter part of his life exiled to an island all by himself, the island of Patmos, where he'd write the book of Revelation. But presently, when Jesus asks them, hey, are you willing to endure? And they say yes, they have no idea what's at stake for them. What we see in Jesus' response to them is this. Guys, your request for glory, your request for glory is a request for suffering. Meaning this, if you want glory in the kingdom of God, you are choosing a cross, and that alone leads to life. There needs to be a distinction, we need to make a distinction here, that only the cross of Jesus can provide salvation. But amongst the followers of Jesus, we must be willing to suffer like Christ for the sake of Christ. Suffering with Christ, suffering for Christ, suffering like Christ. Christ shows that our identities are indeed rooted in Christ when we suffer in faith in Jesus. We experience suffering as a Christian, but Jesus bore God's wrath for us. So now we get to suffer as a co-heir and a co-laborer with Jesus who has transferred our guilt onto himself and transferred his righteousness onto us. The cup that Jesus drinks from is full of the wrath of God against sin. Only he Only Jesus is able to satisfy the wrath of God. But as followers of Jesus, we are now called into fellowship with Jesus, and that means that we must be willing to follow Jesus in submission to God in the same way that he did. The cup and the baptism may lead to suffering because of our affiliation with Christ. And as we learned last week, when we suffer for the sake of Jesus, when Jesus calls us to sell it all, to lay down our idols, whatever that may be, family, friends, houses, lands, when he calls us to follow him, we aren't alone. We aren't alone in our suffering because Christ indeed suffered and is near to us in our suffering. When we're in Christ, we have the indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit who guides and equips us for every good work in Christ. When we suffer for Jesus, we get Jesus. When we suffer for Jesus as believers in Jesus, we get the promises of Jesus to us. And if you're a Christian, man, God dwells inside of you. 
So suffering, as the Bible says in James 1, produces endurance and godliness. It produces steadfastness and godliness, and it yields everlasting joy. Jesus is dead set on the cross. Jesus is dead set on suffering because of the joy that is set before him, which is obedience to God. Following God is the pathway to glory and honor, but before a crown, there's a cup of suffering. Hebrews 12, 2-3 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God, of the throne of God. Consider him who endured for sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Church, we're obedient to Jesus out of hearts transformed by Jesus. Because Jesus was first obedient to God to make salvation possible. His joy is us. His joy is salvation, perfect and complete. And our joy is completed and fulfilled in him. So here are these two guys submitting their request to Jesus. Then they're humbled by Jesus. And then look what happens. Man, I really love just awkward moments in life. Like, it, just, you know, the uncomfortableness of it all. And this verse makes me laugh, man. Verse 41 says, And when the ten heard it, they became indignant at James and John. So I just imagine for a second James and John walking away from Jesus back to the group of dudes standing there like this. Well, how'd it go? Uh, these other guys are mad at him, and I can just feel how uncomfortable this is. Ooh, I love it. Ooh, this is uncomfortable. But I think they're probably mad at James and John because they didn't think to ask Jesus for it first. If you recall, a few chapters ago, Jesus makes a similar prediction right after the disciples are arguing over which one of them was the greatest. So they're all very selfish. They're all probably thinking about their own status, their own position within the kingdom of God. James and John just got to Jesus first. So hearing them grumble and complain and sensing the awkward tension in the room, Jesus calls them together and he says this, Verse 42, Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to serve, came not to be served, but to serve. I better get that right. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, in true Jesus Christ fashion, flips this idea of greatness completely on its head. He says this, In the world, the more important you are, the more people serve you. There's a lust culturally for status, for position, for respect at almost any cost. We're willing to cut corners to get ahead. We want to be the man or the woman. We want to dominate. We want to show our authority. We want respect and we want honor. But Jesus says within the household of God, may it not be so. 
Jesus opposes the ways of the world here. Don't be held captive or or led astray by the ways of the world in your definition of greatness. Jesus says if you want to be great in God's eyes, you must take on the role of a servant. You must take on the posture of a slave. Before Christ, we were held captive in our sin, held in slavery by our sin. And we may want to escape, but it holds on to us. It clings to us. The scripture says it clings to us easily. We easily entangle ourselves in it. But here comes Jesus onto the scene. Verse 45 is what turns Christianity into the gospel. William Lane, he's a commentator, he says, The reversal of all human ideas of greatness and rank was achieved when Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus lays down his life of his own accord. He gave his life as a ransom for many. A ransom is a payment. Ransom means to be delivered by purchase. So one of my all-time favorite movies is Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. In that movie, the world is going nuts over chocolate. I don't get it, whatever. They're trying to get into this famous candy factory. Wonka, the purveyor, the owner of the factory, hides all these golden tickets, five to be exact, golden tickets in these candy bars. And if you found one, you got to go in and tour the mystery factory. And it was a prize indeed. There's a part in the movie, it's a very small part, where this man who's allegedly very wealthy gets kidnapped. And his wife is in there with the authorities, and they get a phone call, and the authorities are negotiating with the kidnappers for this guy's release. For a ransom, they wanted her case of candy bars. So in a similar way, our souls have been kidnapped. Our souls are held captive by an enemy, by sin. The scriptures say we are in slavery with sin being our owners. And Jesus comes to ransom us, to pay for our sin debt in order to free us from that bondage. He makes this payment not to Satan, but to a holy and righteous God. By dying on the cross and defeating death once and for all, Jesus became death by death for us, satisfying the wrath of God against our sin. And because of that ransom being paid on our behalf, we are now, as Scripture says, no longer slaves to sin, but now we're slaves to righteousness. Slaves, servants of Jesus, who is now our Lord and Master. But Jesus is not a cruel and oppressive taskmaster. Jesus says his burden is easy and his yoke is light. Jesus does all the hard work for us when he died in our place. And our response now is obedience and mission with him. Jesus, our master, died in our place. We needed a ransom because we were guilty. But more than that, more than just being guilty, we willingly accepted, we gladly accepted our position as slaves. We chose ourselves over God, and God, being rich in mercy, created for us a way to be reconciled back to him. The payment was made to God, and because of that ransom, we get to be sons and daughters of Jesus. 
The only thing that the enemy gets through the cross and resurrection is defeat. Because of the cross and resurrection, sin and death and Satan have been defeated. And now we're free to follow Christ. And Christ calls us to serve, following the example of Christ. Consider this. In the final moments of Jesus' life, there were two at his right. One at his right, one at his left. Two criminals condemned to death. Christ was serving even while he was experiencing death and humiliation at the hands of sinners. Man, if you want glory, if you want glory as a believer, this is what it looks like. Serving Jesus. And in doing so, you're pointing not to yourself, but to Jesus, the crucified and risen Savior who is willing to lay down his life as a ransom for many. Christ drank the cup of the wrath of God, so we don't have to. Jesus died, not without God's love, but he died because of God's love for sinful humanity as a substitute for us. By his paid ransom, we have been set free. Being a willing servant of God is divine empowerment of God to us. We come to him with nothing. If we think we're something, if we think we have things to offer him, if we think we have it all together, we are deceived. The only thing good in us is because of Christ's work to us. So Christian, if you want to be great... Take the posture of a servant. If you want to be great, consider God's view of greatness. Verse 42 gives us a picture of an earthly ruler or leader. This is how to rule like an earthly ruler. Power. Authority. To desire leadership so much that we may be made much of. Without regard for others or just the desire to be served. That's the earthly sinful way. And Jesus offers us a better way, verse 43 and 44. To be great, to be great in the only way that matters, we look to Jesus. It looks a lot like laying down our lives, dying to ourselves regularly, moment by moment, daily and often. And in that way, we suffer and share in the cup of suffering in order to show the world that God is love. Man, if you want leadership in the church, for example, serve. If you want leadership in your workplace, serve. Here's a question to help you gauge how you're doing. If you want to know if you're serving Jesus or serving yourself, I want you to lay these things over your life. Do I see in my life a heart to serve others? How do I spend the majority of my time? Is it outward-focused or is it inward-focused? Does my life reflect the servanthood of Jesus in that I lay down my life for others? Man, am I remembering the gospel and what Jesus has done on my behalf? And in spite of myself? And is this propelling me forward in love, in Christ's love to others? Am I seeking to make Jesus known through the sharing of the truth of the gospel? 
man, don't think of yourself as deserving. We don't need to think of ourselves as deserving. We are all sinners in need of grace, deserving nothing. Yet, we have been given everything in Christ, so we serve in the same way. We serve not to gain from people. We serve because we follow Jesus. This type of service, especially in Jesus' time, was not viewed very highly. It was actually viewed as absurd. Why are you serving people that have nothing to offer you? And that's exactly what Jesus did. He served people who have nothing to offer. He served people who are dirty because of their sin. And he so willingly stooped down and loved his enemies and through the cross and resurrection made enemies friends through his blood. I want to end church this morning. I want to end just by reminding you of the gospel to you. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, for our good, on our behalf, Jesus Christ took on the cross, our punishment, our guilty verdict, our very death, and bore it on himself. In order to fix us, in order to make us clean, in order, the text says, that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Man, your sin requires this type of payment. You are so sinful that you cannot save yourself. And you're more sinful than you could ever possibly even think or imagine. But in Christ, you're more loved than you even realize or deserve. Your ransom had to be paid, and it was paid in full by the perfect substitutionary death of Jesus for you. If you're in Christ this morning, man, you are no longer guilty. Praise be to God. You are no longer condemned. The guilt and shame you feel, you can be forgiven. You're forgiven of your sins because of the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Man, if you're not in Christ, I believe that Christ is calling you into a relationship with him this morning. You can admit your brokenness. You can admit your neediness. You can admit that you are a sinner in need of grace. And Jesus takes it all upon himself and willingly went to the cross in order that you can be saved and forgiven and have eternal life. Christ took on the posture of a servant and served you even unto death. Your response this morning, Christian, non-Christian, your response is repentance and belief and confession of your sins to God. Your response is belief that Jesus is better and that he has something better for you. Trust, repent, believe in Christ this morning, church. Would you pray with me?